1: As the U.S. debates immigration issues on the U.S. border with Mexico and in the Supreme Court, we'll ask about the impact of immigration on the U.S. economy.
2: Immigrants, like the rest of us, are sensible people. They're here for economic reasons. They want jobs. If jobs aren't available, they'd go back home.
1: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll look at the data and the personal stories behind immigration. We'll also take you around the region to learn what an accent can say about a person.
3: I don't sound terribly Australian. That tells the story of somebody who has gone to drama school, been made to feel a little ashamed of their Australian accent.
4: To cook up some invasive species. It's like a bamboo forest and like bamboo that's also invasive, it crowds everything else out. So if you look around the ground where the knotweed is growing, there's nothing else growing but knotweed
1: and to listen to music from a composer who's made all of New England his home and made a living writing about it. I say that I like, kind of found a way to monetize restlessness. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us for our special episode number 100. It's hard to believe we're going to share some of our favorite segments throughout this hour. But we're going to start with a topic that's once again at the top of the news this week. Democratic members of Congress from Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maine and New Hampshire all traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border in Brownsville, Texas this past weekend. They said their offices were being flooded with phone calls from constituents distraught over reports of migrant children being separated from their families. President Trump has reversed his policy of separating families but WBUR's Shannon Dooling found there's still a lot of confusion, distress and waiting on both sides of the border.
5: We arrive at the border crossing. It costs a dollar, payable only in quarters, to get into Mexico at this point of entry. You drop the change into a turnstile, like the kind you'd pass through to get onto an amusement ride. We cross a pedestrian bridge over the chocolate-milk-colored Rio Grande and enter Matamoros, Mexico. In the other direction, there's a makeshift Customs and Border Patrol checkpoint, two CBP agents and a podium. Locals say they've never seen a preliminary checkpoint like this on the bridge into the U.S. A few people are waiting here, including a mother with her 19-year-old son and 15- and 8-year-old daughters her three-year-old granddaughter is peering out through the holes in the chain-link fence running along the bridge. Rosa is from Honduras. She says she had her own business there. She'd sell clothes, shoes, some food, until the gang MS-13 started trying to extort her. She and her husband refused. So, she says, the gang killed her husband and tried to kidnap her oldest children. That's when she took her family and fled to Mexico, where they've been living for a year. But, she says, the gang found them in Mexico, too. And so now they're seeking asylum in the U.S. We're only using Rosa's first name because she's afraid that if the gang can find her in Mexico, they may be able to find her in the U.S. She tells me she has a friend in Boston who's expecting her. But first, she has to make it through the makeshift checkpoint. If she does, and her family is able to apply for asylum, in time, they'll likely find themselves waiting again at the border patrol station, possibly in a detention facility, and maybe, if things go according to their plan, they might wait for a few hours with Sister Norma.
1: There's one person from yeah. Boston, but they're not here. They're going to bring them later on. They're in oh. another parish right now, okay. where they spend the night. They don't have a bus ticket, so they're waiting to
0: contact. Their friend. has not responded. Oh.
5: Sister so, Norma Pimentel is. heads up a humanitarian respite center run by Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. It's in McAllen, Texas, about an hour west along the border. It's a place where immigrant families hoping to get asylum in the U.S. can go to take a hot shower, eat a meal, and get supplies for the next leg of their journey.
1: Where they can look forward to being with their, reuniting with their family and and, uh, and continuing that process. Hopefully that uh, they're able to secure some kind of, of a political asylum case.
5: Pimentel says the center receives around 50 families a day, most of them from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Everyone in the facility looks exhausted. Some are slumping forward, resting their elbows on their knees, and holding their heads in their hands. Many of the adults are sitting in blue plastic chairs, sort of staring off into the distance, waiting for their bus to bring them closer to their family. And in the corner, there's six or seven children, playing with volunteers, laughing, and at least for these few moments, carefree.
1: That's our immigration reporter, Shannon Dooling, reporting from Texas. We'll hear more from her in a minute. One of the loudest arguments about immigration, both legal and illegal, from both Mexico and predominantly Muslim countries, is that it hurts the chances of American-born workers to succeed and damages the U.S. economy. But here in New England, the population is aging faster than the rest of the country, and the young replacement workers needed to sustain that workforce are leaving. Immigration is providing the only demographic trend that's going in the other direction. But we rarely conduct this immigration conversation with data. It's mostly with emotion. So a few weeks back, we tried to change that with a live next event at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven, Connecticut. We spoke with Mushfiq Mubarak, a professor of economics at Yale University, who's done research on the impact of immigration on the U.S. economy. He's also a native of Bangladesh who immigrated here. I want to ask you first about this idea of immigration affecting native-born workers. There is a feeling that if people come from elsewhere, that it is going to naturally negatively impact the availability of jobs for native-born Americans. Talk a bit more through the research that you've
2: done about that and that you've seen about that. This is the natural reaction, which is, you know, you observe a foreign born worker coming in and taking a job and your natural reaction is, oh, you know, the simplest explanation here is that this is a job that would have gone to an American born worker had it not been for the foreign. But it turns out that when you look at the data very, very carefully, the story is not that simple.
1: I guess I'm wondering if you talk about the economy as a whole, what do we see as the impact of this increasing number of immigrants coming over the course of the last couple of decades?
2: So one of the mistakes we're making in, you know, when people think about the adverse effects of immigration is that if you think that there is some kind of a fixed number of jobs in the United States economy, and whenever an immigrant comes in, they take up some of those jobs, and of course you're going to see negative effects. But that's a very strange or unsophisticated way to think about the world. There isn't a fixed number of jobs. And so the way to think about how jobs are changing is that if there are immigrant workers who are lowering the cost of operating the business, that actually creates an opportunity for entrepreneurs to hire more Americans to be client-facing.
1: I want to go into the idea of the rate of immigration and the overall numbers. If it's true that we don't have a magic number of jobs in the U.S., we probably need, though, to arrive at some sort of a baseline for what we might set as a target. Is there a way to calculate how much immigration over how many years is going to make the inputs into the economy such that we can be sustained and growing? What is the tipping point at which too much immigration is too much?
2: I know, I think the short answer to that is no. There is no magic formula. It's just that if if any number we get, it's probably not gonna be credible. And let me try to explain some of that complexity. So we were talking about very simple jobs. It depends on, I'm going to use an economic term, elasticity, so it depends on when an immigrant worker comes in, how much cheaper is the operation of the business and therefore how many more workers can this person hire relative to how many jobs are being lost because you know, there's some fixed constraints on the number of jobs that are created. So that itself is complex, right? But it gets even more complex beyond that because the effect of immigration is not just in taking versus creating jobs. It's also about innovation. It turns out immigrants are one of the most important contributors to innovation in the United States, right? And innovation is the sector that we do really well in. So the U.S. economy, the U.S. does have a trade deficit in virtually every sector. And now, if you think about where the trade deficit is narrowest, right, it's most closest to a surplus, it's in high-tech sectors. So the U.S. economy specializes in high-tech. It specializes in the creation of new markets, new products. And that's how jobs get created. So is there some kernel, though, in that, in
1: argument for the merit-based immigration system that some propose that say if we bring people here who are innovators with certain job skills we won't be displacing or driving down the wages of lower skilled workers but we will be bringing in people who can contribute economically at the highest possible level to keep america on a trajectory
2: that we believe that we're on do we think that government bureaucrats sitting at uscis that they're the best at identifying talent and innovators Probably not, right? America has a big family-based immigration policy, so which is that, you know, apart from these H-1B visas, which is companies hiring people and then sponsoring them for visas, there's also American citizens who can sponsor their relatives to come to the U.S. Now, is that a problem? No, look, American citizens who are bringing other people in, when they bring other people in, and I've had to do this myself, they are taking responsibility, financial responsibility for those people. American citizens by and large are sensible. They're only going to take responsibility for a set of people who they want to bring in and think that this is a good idea. And I think leaving it up to US citizens about who they want to bring in, there's a lot to be said for that rather than leaving it up to government. I wouldn't bring my loser cousin in because you know, you, I, I'm gonna have to pay for that for many, many years if I do.
1: <laughs> I, I, I wanna bring up our next, on that note, I want to bring up our next guest, uh, someone who's, who's involved in the process of welcoming in people into the country. Will Connerum is Director of Employment and Education Services at Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services in New Haven. Will, maybe you can talk a little bit about the work that you do at, at IRIS, first of all, just to give us a grounding in your work.
6: Absolutely. So we are a refugee resettlement organization here in New Haven, Connecticut. Just so you have some idea of the numbers, there are 65 million refugees in the world, 22 million of them have been given refugee status by the United Nations, and fewer than 1% of that group have been resettled each year for the last number of years. So America's been bringing anywhere from 60 to 100,000 refugees, and our current president set the number at a record low of 45,000 for this fiscal year, but it looks like we'll have fewer than 20,000. So this affects every organization across the country. At IRIS here in New Haven, we resettle special immigrant visa holders. We see the effect it has on the economy and our society every day. Statistically and anecdotally, the answer to whether <laughs> immigration is good for the U.S. economy is an unequivocal yes.
1: I, I, I want to turn to Shannon Dooling. She's a reporter for WBUR in Boston. She's been working with me for the last couple of years on the New England News Collaborative on this project called Facing Change. And one of the things that you've, you've followed is is not just individuals who are here who have some you know, very harrowing personal stories that we've heard at some great length through our reporting, but also families that have mixed immigration status and how difficult that can be.
5: Yeah, so it's often referred to as mixed status households. They are very common. The family that we're thinking about right now, I'll give you their sort of portfolio. The mother and father fled from Guatemala the four sons of of these two people. Three of them are US-born citizens. One of them is not. He came to the country without authorization to meet up with his mom and dad. Isidro Macario is the eldest. He was born in Guatemala. And in February, he was deported back to Guatemala. I was there at the airport at Logan International at six in the morning you know, literally, regardless of where you stand on policy, you're watching siblings being separated and not knowing when or how or if they're going to reunite. So let's hear from Isidro. Um, he talks here a little bit about what living in a mixed status household has meant for him.
7: You know, it's it's very tough for for, for myself and also for my family because Um, You know, we've been struggling with this for so many years, and um, instead instead of getting better, we, you know, it get it, it keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and we just no nobody understands probably our pain.
5: That was a hard, a hard story to witness.
1: There is an economic imperative to this as well, and you you got at it before, and it has to do with what this has done to, to these young men. Can you talk about that and how this relates to our conversation about the economy?
5: I think what my takeaway is, is that, so the three youngest brothers, all U.S. citizens, U.S.-born citizens, the 21-year-old had sort of accepted the fact that he was now going to be the primary breadwinner for his family of three. He said, I'll, I'll pick up, you know, a couple extra shifts. Um, I'm going to try to do my best to be the father figure. The... 18 year old was going to pick up some extra shifts at McDonald's in a Boston suburb and also, you know, try to make it through his senior year of high school. And the 16 year old didn't want to talk at all. It was kind of like if he wasn't talking about it, it wasn't happening. The 18 year old and 16 year old have failed out of high school. The 21 year old is trying to sort of keep it all together. So here we have three US born citizens and according to politics and policy, we've made a very clear line to differentiate them from their brother. And we've not given them much hope or motivation to become productive members of of our community or our society. It's really all they can do to just kind of keep it together and be there for one another. So I'll let you maybe do the calculations as to what that might mean for economic productivity. But to me, it means we have some disenfranchised and isolated citizens that are gonna be part of a whole new generation.
1: Mm. Well, let's talk about the, the two pieces of that, So there's policy that may change and may limit the number of people to enter the United States. But then there's that, that overwhelming worry that people have about whether or not America is a welcoming place for immigrants. Talk about that impact and what you see
2: coming down the pike. So I think the most lasting damage that I'm very worried about, about this country, is that if this current administration, is successful in relaying to the world that this is not a welcoming place for you. And then what happens is that, as I was saying earlier, why we have succeeded over the last many decades or centuries is that we have been the most welcoming place for talented people, a lot of talented people initially from Europe and then from other parts of the world, all agglomerated here, and this country became successful. If somehow you know we now start conveying the message that we don't want you, this is not a place for you, then a lot of those talented people are going to end up somewhere else. And that's going to not show up immediately, but it's going to show up as 20 years down the road with less innovation happening. So if the next Google doesn't get started in the United States, and instead it gets started in Germany or in Australia, that's going to be the big cost for us. And that's the lasting damage that we should all be really, really worried about.
1: That was an excerpt from our recent live next event, Is Immigration Good for the U.S. Economy? To read more about the effects of immigration on the economy and to see some of the data we presented there, visit nextnewengland.org and our Facing Change page. Coming up, don't like invasive species? Try eating them. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. This week's show is our 100th, so we're going to listen back to some of our favorite segments over the last two years or so, including this one from WBUR's Sarah Rose Brenner. Now, if you know the Netflix prison drama Orange is the New Black, you'll recognize a character with what we'll call a Boston-flavored accent. Actress Yael Stone went searching for Lorna Morello's voice, and it brought her right to Sarah Rose. I love the
3: beach. But I
8: burn like a lobster, so I'm going to get a good swim shirt. And bonus, it's going to hide the gallbladder score. That's Australian actress Yael Stone as Lorna Morello in season one. She's in prison for stalking a guy she met at the post office. They only had coffee once, but Lorna invented an entire love story between them, and she really believes it.
0: Did she ever make an attempt on your life? Yes. We found a homemade explosive device under Angela's car.
9: He's being so
3: dramatic. They're twisting this whole story.
8: You might not hear it, but Lorna Morello, the character, is from East Boston. Five years ago, early into filming of the first season... Yael Stone, the actress, took a quick trip to Boston to help her learn the character.
3: I think it was two days, yeah, and I had my camera with me, and I took some photos, which also I found really helpful. You know, I did, I did find those areas
8: imaginatively that I was like, oh, this is maybe what Lorna's childhood house looks like. In addition to photographs, Stone made audio recordings, and she used them to start piecing together a biography for her character. You know, two days is not a a lot, but it did help me collect a kind of visual audio bank to draw from. My voice and my accent are in that audio bank. On that trip to Boston five years ago, Stone and I met at a cafe, and she brought her recorder. And they do
3: like each week they choose one character to have like a, a backstory on it, oh, cool. and you find out what, why they're in prison basically. There's a beautiful part where, which I used to love listening to, where you're talking about. Oh, I think you're talking about work and yes, sports.
8: Yeah, it's great. Other than the fact that there's no hockey. So.
3: It must have been around Christmas time. Because there's Christmas music in the background.
8: I, think it's, I, I blame it like solely on Jeremy Jacobs at this point. The, who's the,
9: the who's
8: and it just
3: has this like beautiful ethereal yeah. quality and, and it's like drifting away and you're talking with your beautiful accent and I, I used to love listening to that. Um, there's
8: a few things I would listen to on the way to work. Stone listened of- to that recording and others to help perfect a hybrid northeast sound. This is
3: not my attempt at a Boston accent. I was also living in Brooklyn at the time, and it is a really Brooklyn sound. There are some parts of that sound, though, that do have Boston elements. So it's definitely a cocktail. And that cocktail reveals a lot about Lorna and her background. The sounds we make tell the story of our life sometimes. So. For Lorna, the sounds that she makes tells the story of, of her life, so a life that's kind of moved up and down the, the East Coast, that she's very adaptable. She's done pretty well in prison because she has been flexible. She's managed to create allegiances that have kept her safe. Fisher never came to visit when she had Rosa. You know what she'd do? She'd bring me a heat bar
8: and a cold Dr Pepper at the end of the day. Isn't that thoughtful? Huh. Maybe you could do that when you come to check on me. Like Lorna, Stone says her own voice tells
3: people a lot about who she is. I don't sound terribly Australian. People tell me that all the time. That tells the story of somebody who has gone to drama school, been made to sh- feel a little ashamed of their Australian accent because, you know, we have a bit of cultural cringe in Australia. Um, so that already, that tells you something about me and my personality. So,
8: you know, I think, you know, an accent can tell a big story. So the next time you're talking to someone or binging Netflix, listen closely. You might just learn something.
1: That was Sarah Rose Brenner from WBUR reporting. I think it's fair to say that the regional food of New England is seafood. Lobster rolls, fried clams, steamers, scallops, and cod. But depleted stocks, warming waters, pollution, and nitrogen runoff are all concerns that have us changing the way we think about what we eat from our waters. On our very first show, we talked with chefs who are putting unwanted fish on the menu, hoping to reduce demand for those increasingly threatened, sought-after fish that you usually see on just about every seafood restaurant menu, fish like tuna. Emily Corwin brought us this profile of Chef Brendan Vesey of The Joinery in Newmarket, New Hampshire
7: tuna is delicious, and I understand why we catch it, but I
9: currently don't serve it. He says eating that one big predator at the top of the food chain throws off the whole ecosystem. So instead of seared tuna steaks on his menu, it's...
7: Invasive green crab bisque with seared fish, fresh peas, and house-made bacon.
9: That's right. Invasive green crab bisque for $10. That creepy sound is 20 pounds of green crabs clawing and crawling in a plastic bucket. Fisherman Everett Leach is dropping them off here at the restaurant. As he stops one from escaping, another crawls right out.
1: Keep an eye on them. They're runners.
9: Green crabs are native to Europe and Africa, but they arrived in New England 200 years ago. They eat a lot of things fishermen are after. Clams, oysters, mussels, soft-shell crabs, scallops. The Maine Clambers Association describes green crabs on their website as a cancer literally eating away at Maine's marine resources. That's a quote.
7: Quantity is not a problem. There's Millions of them.
9: VC pays two bucks a pound for these guys. That's a third what he'd pay for steamer clams and a ninth what he'd pay for scallops.
4: All right, guys, it's your time.
9: Immediately, he starts growing the crabs into two big stockpots.
4: I'm gonna put them in a hot pot with some oil in the bottom and toast the shells up, and then I'll add liquid to make uh, stock
9: for now stock is about the only thing you can make with these guys. VC says you could spend hours shelling all 20 pounds of these crabs and end up with only a half pound of meat.
7: And they're really small and there's and they're really really hard the shells rock hard.
9: The stock is green and pungent, and it tastes sweet and rich. V.C. hopes someday, though, he can do something more with these little critters than just make soup. With blue crabs, for example, that's the kind you find in Maryland. Fishermen have figured out how to catch them just before they shed their shells, then harvest them while they're naked. That's soft-shell crab.
2: If we had those, we could probably get rid of green crabs in a year because
7: everybody wants to eat that.
9: It's been 200 years since the New England shoreline was free of these invasive predators. Without them, think of all the money makers the oysters and scallops there'd be to go around.
1: That's reporter Emily Corwin of VPR. She reported that story for New Hampshire Public Radio's food blog, Foodstuffs. Now, I've actually eaten tiny invasive crabs before. They're on the menu at a place in New Haven, Connecticut called Mia's. It's known as the birthplace of sustainable sushi. What exactly does that mean? Well, you're not gonna find things you're used to seeing on the menu of the sushi place down the street. No farmed shrimp or salmon, no bluefin tuna or eel. They're all replaced by unwanted fish like carp and lots and lots of plants, including some plants that come from Chef Bun Lai's front
4: yard. This is this is wild lettuce. Smell this. It's amazing.
1: Oh it smells beautiful.
4: Okay, and then take a little tear like that. Yeah. Taste like it. That. Whoa! Mm-hmm. I and mean,
1: it has a lot of flavors I wouldn't have expected. Mm-hmm. You know, just sort of, it jumps out at you at first.
4: Mm-hmm. Waves of flavor. It's yeah. very, very um, sophisticated. But it's an old plant, and you'll feel that way about a a lot of the plants that we'll be eating today. So, wow! Look at this right over here. Another weed.
1: That's pretty much how Bunlight works, foraging for edibles in the ocean, in the sand, in the woods, and in the yard. We spent about 20 minutes stooped over on a sweltering day, filling a basket with wild mustards, mugwort, and dandelion weeds. He called it lunch. He then took us on a walk to go in search of knotweed, an incredibly pervasive, invasive plant that you'd recognize growing tall at the side of a highway.
4: This is a great ro- road to go foraging because uh, there are barely any cars on it. But here you go, this is uh, How would you describe this?
1: <laughs> yeah, how would you describe it? I mean, I, I think some people, when they first see it for the first time, they'd say, oh, this must be bamboo.
4: It's like a bamboo forest, and like bamboo that's also invasive, it crowds everything else out. So if you look around the ground where the knotweed is growing, there's nothing else growing but knotweed, um, because it shades everything else out, and all the other plants around here need sun. Some of this knotweed is 12, 15 feet high.
1: So what would you have to do to get rid of this?
4: Uh, The way it's generally done is pesticides because it's so incredibly hardy. And even with pesticides, it's really hard to control this thing. So it really makes sense really more than anything, just to weaken the plant. And the way to weaken the plant is to to keep chopping it down. I'm gonna show you, I've got, I brought a machete. Give it a little snap. So I got one right over here. Ooh, this one's great. These big leaves. At Mia's what we do is um, we kimchi pickle these and then deep prime into chips. And uh, what we're doing right at home, and you're gonna taste it, is uh, we're simmering these leaves right now in a stock, and then we're gonna make our own sushi out of it. Now imagine if we took this knotweed, not just this knotweed, but we made relationships with all these different parks and all these different areas where uh, invasive knotweed uh, was a problem and then we were to process these into these these chips You know that we know taste incredibly delicious because we've experimented at Mia's then all of a sudden we'd be able to help curb the proliferation of the species and also um, put it to good use
1: We took some of these huge knotweed stalks into the kitchen along with another enormous leaf plant called Butterbur, which he threw in to the simmering knotweed stalk. We took the rest of the woody stalks to his appreciative backyard goats.
4: They're uh, very, very excited. They know what's coming. Oh, yeah. When I discovered my first uh, invasive species, it was with my buddy, Yancy we were flipping over rocks and we saw these invasive Asian shore crabs. Um, in fact, the ones that are right in this bucket. See that? Look at that. So there they are. There they are. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, it's I thought you had like some sort of like chicken food in there. It is chicken food. <laughs> so we're gonna feed these to the chickens.
1: If you've never seen ducks and chickens running after a scurrying shore crab, you are missing something. Now the animals have eaten their invasives, it's sushi time in the kitchen.
4: And here's the knotweed coming out.
1: He pulls a few leaves of the weed out of the aromatic broth. He's prepared some simple sushi rice, a homemade sauce made out of stewed seaweed from Long Island Sound, and those leafy greens we picked in the yard.
4: Uh, We're gonna step back to the origins of sushi. So thousands and thousands of years ago, people were only eating uh, food that they would find in their backyard, so to speak. That's what we're doing right now. We're eating ancient-style sushi that was much more nutritious and tastier and simpler than what it is today. And uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll dip it. Let's dip it into the seaweed first. And then, mm, mmm, oh my gosh, mmm.
1: The seaweed, so that's that's like your, that's your version of soy sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Whoa. I really prefer that. Mm, that's really good. And it felt good, too, making use of something we spend good money and bad chemicals trying to get rid of. For pictures of me foraging and making sushi with Chef Bun Lai of Mia's in New Haven, go to nextnewengland.org. We've been tasting New England. Now it's time to really listen. NHPR's Sean Hurley brought us this postcard he recorded last summer with Steve Wilkes, a drumming professor at Berklee College of Music and a former member of the Blue Man Group. Wilkes was making the first-ever audio map of the White Mountains.
10: We walked beside the summer quiet chairlift at the Waterville Valley Ski Area, Steve Wilkes and I, on our way to the 4,000-foot summit of Mount Tecumseh.
0: One of the things I wanted to do today is I just wanted to do a really wide stereo recording of the summit, regardless of what's there.
10: Though Wilkes has only been recording for a few days, his audio map of the White Mountains is already studded with sounds. From the birds and bugs atop Mount Israel, (whistles) to the train and crew noise of the Cog Railway. And now we're on the bypass version of the uh, Cog Railway again. This was built in the early 2000s. Wilkes has done this before. For three years, he roved and recorded Cape Cod, creating a sound map of the indigenous and characteristic sounds there. One early sound surprise for Wilkes here in the forest?
0: I definitely expected a lot more birds. And as we can see on this trail right now, there's not a bird within earshot.
10: This lack of bird sound, however, revealed something else. It's just been so darn quiet.
0: You can't find this on Cape Cod. There's nowhere on Cape Cod you will find it this, this silent.
10: Is quiet something that you can capture well?
0: Yeah, I think so. Maybe that's one of the artistic challenges of this. You know, I'm here recording the forest, but how do I get across to everybody else the idea, the quality of silence when recording is essentially, you know, a, a medium to record the opposite?
10: An artistic challenge Wilkes has to face when we arrive on the quiet, windless summit of Mount Tecumseh. Here's his recording. Not absolute silence, Wilkes says, but a way toward it.
0: Things like insects will oblige and fly by your mics. In some ways, I think that communicates as silence to people.
10: After 10 minutes of recording, Wilkes gathers his gear.
0: What we just did was an act of music. We were taking part and these sounds coming to life around us, Mm. simply by taking the time to acknowledge them and listen to them and appreciate them.
10: We head back down the mountain.
0: I'm I'm coming from the standpoint of a musician. I can't get away from that. In some way, this is all about music to me.
10: The music of nature, the nature of music. The very act of listening, Wilkes suggests, is a form of music. And a good listener, a kind of musician.
0: And I guess that means Being a musician is more about how you take things in through the years, how you accept and respect things through the years, at least as much, if not more than, performing something or writing something.
10: book stops to record a brook.
0: So water has been kind of a huge theme for me. And it wasn't necessarily what I expected, but definitely the other surprise and it shouldn't be, but has just been the people that I've encountered on the trails, Mm -hmm. and um, especially some of the people that I've been able to record.
10: Silence, water, people. Wilkes expected none of these to become his themes, which led to some initial uncertainty. Was there a moment when you recorded something or heard something up here where you realized, okay, this can work? Yeah.
0: south fork of hancock branch about a half mile in on the greeley ponds trail and i looked over at the right channel mic and already a spider had crossed it and left that long thread of a web and it was glinting on top of the mic in the windscreen in the sunlight and i'm telling you man i thought now that is recording when the spider web starts showing up on your mics you are in the right place
10: here then is the sound of a spider web glinting in the sun.
1: That was NHPR's Sean Hurley reporting. Coming up, a local composer who's inspired by the New England landscape. It's next. Next is Made Possible. In part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the john Merck fund supporting the new england news collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy if new england had a soundtrack what would be on it we know at least some of the songs would be written by local composer ben cosgrove whose instrumental compositions are inspired by our region's landscapes Cosgrove joined us in the studio to talk about how he makes music inspired by New England. Ben Cosgrove, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. We're going to talk about your your new project in just a minute. But first of all, I want to get a sense of place with you. When we talked to you about coming to do this, I said, "Well, where in New England exactly are you based?" And you told me kind of everywhere. Tell me more about that. You're like a New England
7: guy. Yeah, I I say that I like kind of found a way to monetize restlessness. <laughs> I grew up in the Mass, New Hampshire border. And then now I'm a touring musician. And I, I really kind of obsessed with this region and have kind of used my role as a musician to kind of as an excuse to be everywhere all the time whenever I can. Mm. So. I'm wondering if you can
1: you can play some music that that you've written that is inspired by a New England place. Pick one for us. What do you what would you like to play?
7: I can do a very distinctive New England this. Is, I, I was the artist-in-residence at White Mountain National Forest a couple of years ago. And the the way, I, what I ended up doing for them is to kind of celebrate just exactly this, the fact that it, that forest is so many things. It's like where people live. It's commercially active. It's, it's you know, there are parts that are very hard to get to. Almost no one's there. I wrote just a big pile of smaller songs that all kind of connect to each other in these unexpected ways and this one's called wind falling from a higher place and you're supposed to imagine that uh you're on the you know a rocky ridgeline and the weather is whipping about you and you can't really see where you're going and you're being buffeted by wind and rain whatever and those conditions clear up just often enough that you can kind of recalibrate and and set yourself back on the path you were on and then start back up before everything kind of fires back up again
1: Break this down for us in terms of how you you're using the the notes to to convey something.
7: Well, I think about all of these are necessarily pretty abstract. So I, I I guess the way I describe the my process is that I kind of simultaneously walk through the world, collecting you know straight up musical ideas that are not connected to any non musical ideas at all. Um, and but also, as I was saying, like kind of paying close attention to the landscapes I'm in and how the and these built or natural environments are kind of affecting me in a, in my, a lizard brain kind of way. <laughs> and then, whenever something in that latter category really strikes me, like this this thing on the ridgeline, or a um, you know the the arrangement of a particular set of cliffs, or an estuary, or a river, or whatever, then I try to figure out what in that garbage bag of musical ideas I can kind of Lego together to create a musical experience that'll approximate the that phenomenon that I had in the or that I experienced in the landscape
1: you you mentioned built landscapes and also natural landscapes. And of course, when people think landscapes, they they tend to, at least my mind moves toward the natural. and the the striking vistas of the White mountains or the rocky coastline of Maine. What about the built environment? and how exactly do you make that into
7: something? that people can experience as, as a landscape as well well i mean it is it's it's yeah. uh especially interesting around here because as we were saying earlier there's i mean there's just so many people around mm-hmm. we've had to be very kind of i mean we as new englanders and northeasterners and uh, have had to be very kind of mindful of how we what we do with our different the different parts of this landscape we inhabit. So, it's resulted in this thing where that we've we've ended up with a lot of places that are kind of dedicatedly, you know, natural. Like you, if you if you want to see, you know, nature, you go here. And I think the most interesting places are those where those lines aren't as hard, and you can kind of wander through. I mean, the, the New England Trail, which I'm working on with right now, you, it starts off, you know, in this beautiful start march, and then you go uh, over, you go through a soccer field, and then you're on a street for a little bit, and then you're in the woods for a while. I just think that that is such an emblematic experience of like walking around the the landscape of this part of the world I, maybe we can go to go to that next and I, I'd like to hear
1: more about this the the New England trail is is something that I don't know very much about what can, what else can you tell us about the New England trail in in your role in helping to bring it to people's attention
7: yeah the uh, new England trail is one of a, uh, about a dozen National Scenic Trails um, that are, they're managed by the National Park Service. It's It includes the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail and a host of others. It's one of the newest, so it, it was just uh, made a trail in 2009. And it runs along the old uh, metacomet Monadnock Trail in Massachusetts and the Metacomet and Matabesa Trails in Connecticut. And I'm the artist in residence this year for the trail which they have because nobody knows this thing is there. Um, so, my what I'm supposed to be doing is is walking as much of this trail as I can, and then writing some music or creating some kind of musical product that'll that'll reflect it in some way.
1: Is there something you're working on right now that you can play for us? So maybe some a work in process or something.
7: Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a song called Cairn, It's and it's kind of it's one of the opening songs for the for the set, and it's it's a good example of a thing I'm trying to do with all of the songs, which is. I'm really interested in the way that we kind of carry, or as you move along these things, you notice, you, you, you don't notice the things that stay the same, and, but those, those kind of commonalities make the changes in the landscape more obvious. Mm. So uh, the songs I'm writing, I have tried to use a lot of pedal tones and drones and notes that kind of hang throughout the piece and, well, kind of harmonies and rock formations change underneath them. <laughs>
1: Beautiful. Thank you. That's really beautiful. It Bodes well. No, no, yeah. no one's heard that. No, 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 no.
7: <laughs> when do you know it's done? Um, I, oh man, that's a great question. There is a lot. Of, I used to say until it was recorded and released. But then there's there. I mean, there are songs that I recorded years ago that I've continued to edit. So,
1: but because you've been all over this region and you've you've lived here and you've worked here and you've experienced the the, the urban areas and also a lot of a lot of the nature. Do you have the sense that New England holds together as like a contiguous place or is it a bunch of different places that all just sort of
7: call themselves something? I think it's both. I mean, it's definitely a lot of different places, but it's a lot of different places that that rhyme. You know, it, it's these these small things that you wouldn't notice, just like the way that all the, the the towns and villages are kind of nucleated, like you know, they radiate out from these these points where all the roads converge, long kind of winding roads connecting town centers. Yes. I, th- I think that New England is, is a, a cohesive entity and also one that, I mean, the, the best thing about it is that when you move from, you know, one 50-mile area to another, you can feel like you're in a totally different world. Ben Cosgrove is the first ever composer in residence
1: for the New England Trail. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to talk to you. To hear more of Ben's music and to learn about upcoming performances, go to bencosgrove.com. Well, we made it through 100 episodes charting our changing region. Thank you for your support of the show, whether you're listening on the main seacoast, a rolling highway in rural Vermont, a coffee shop in Concord, or a traffic jam in Hartford. And a special thanks to everyone who's made this show possible here. Our executive producer, Katie Tolarski, Our founding producer, Andrew Maraskin. Our amazing show producers, Lydia Brown, Lily Tyson, and Ali Oshinsky and our digital producers Heather Brandon and Carlos Mejia. Todd Merrill wrote our theme music. You can hear sounds recorded all over our region buried right in there, and you can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Our friends, the New Haven-based folk rock band Goodnight Blue Moon, they let us use their song, New England, thanks. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.